Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Well, I've got something I need to get off my chest because I don't know what is wrong with us these days, but many seem determined to force feed us a daily diet of doom. If we're not all going to die because we can't afford to eat, then it'll be pneumonia that gets us. And if we do manage to survive the heating and eating crisis, we shouldn't relax too much because there's a new danger in town, monkeypox. I've lost count of how many stories I've seen about this recently, how many viral experts I've heard and how many pictures I've seen of blisters in places that, quite frankly, uh, we don't want blisters. Joe Biden has told us, and I quote, that everyone should be worried about the spread of monkeypox. The World Health Organization is considering an emergency declaration. Belgium has become the first country to introduce mandatory quarantine, and the New York Health Department is recommending masks. Of course they are. Well, so far, so bizarre when you, in fact, learn that there's been about 100 or so cases of monkeypox reported globally. And given that the world's population is about 7.7 billion, that represents something like 0.0000001 of the global population. Over in the UK, our population affected, well, that stands at about 0.0005 of our 67 million population. I tell you, all those noughts make your eyes and your voice go funny. The NHS, meanwhile, says that if you are indeed one of the unfortunates that get this, the virus is usually mild and most people recover in a few weeks. And add to that, if you are indeed desperate, a vaccine already exists which can help. So, with all of the above in mind, I personally say, can we all please calm down? Keeping me company here until 7 o'clock tonight, my panel broadcaster and commentator, Calvin Robinson. And your first, your debut I know, on I know. Thank Kerr. you for inviting me on. Good evening. Welcome. Also, journalist Ella Whelan and former Labour advisor, Scarlett Maguire. Good evening, ladies. And you know the drill on Jubes and Co, don't you, by now? It's not just about us here. It's about you at home as well. What's on your mind tonight? Uh, are you sitting at home panicking? about monkeypox, or are you in the same kind of camp as me and what's your thoughts on some of the other things that we're going to be discussing? You can email me gbviews at gbnews.uk or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Don't forget, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to us on YouTube, you can download our app and if you're just about to head out tonight, you can take me with you. What a treat, because we are on DAB Plus Radio, so wherever you are tonight, you are very welcome. Now let's get to our top story, shall we? What do we think to this? Is the Church of England racist? Our maternity services in this country racist too. Every single day, there seems to be a list now, doesn't there, of more services, organisations and institutions that might be fundamentally racist. But are we creating a crisis where none exists? Is this really the case that basically this country is dripping from head to toe with racism? 
Well, let's start with Calvin. You have uh, you've been all over the press today, haven't you? Is it because I'm black? Why are you starting with me? Yeah. Oh gosh. <laughs> I'm going to start with you because you are dominating the well, headlines. Yeah. You've been quite an early celebrity today. I feel honoured to have your company. Yes. Uh, what's been going on? This is the problem, isn't it? If everything is racist and everyone is racist, it undermines actual racism that is happening. I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that the Church of England is racist, and that is my belief that I would need to see evidence before I believe it. Um, however, Tell us your story, by the way, just in case people have not um, caught yeah. up with this. So I have spent the last couple of years training for the priesthood, for holy orders in the Church of England. Um, I was sent to Oxford to read theology. I've, I've reached the end of my training now, and now is the time that I should be sent to a parish as an assistant priest or a curate. Um, and I was assigned a curacy, and it was snatched away in the last minute, and I, I didn't know why. So I put in a subject access request to the church and found out that actually the Bishop of Edmonton and the Bishop of London believe strongly that the church is institutionally racist. And when I go on TV and say that I don't believe it is, that has sparked an issue. Forgive me, because I must say, I don't know some of the people you know personally. Are they yeah. white? They are, are they... They are very white. They are very middle class, right. very metropolitan liberal elite. And uh, they are very much of the mindset that we should listen to more ethnic minority voices on this issue. But not my voice. Not my voice as an ethnic minority, because I've got the wrong uh, perspective. I, I find it troubling when we have... a a host of, in fact, the Archbishop of Canterbury has said the church is institutionally racist and the country. The Bishop of London has said the church is institutionally racist. The Bishop of Edmonton. So the three most uh, powerful people, in my line at least, from London up into the, the uh, Archbishop, have said that it is, is the case. I've said it isn't. Now you've got, a, you've got three metropolitan liberal elite people with white guilt saying that this institution is racist, telling an ethnic minority people person who says that it isn't that he's wrong on this matter and his experience doesn't count. I, I find that cognitive dissonance difficult to, to navigate, to be honest with you, unless they're trying to prove themselves right. They've, you know, they've been in power, what, 11 years, 18 years. If the church is racist, either they're responsible for it or they haven't solved it. Therefore, I believe they should probably step down and have an, hold an election uh, to get someone else in. Hello, where do you stand on all this? Well, it's funny because, you know, throughout history, um, the church has had, has and, you know, in centuries gone by, played a significant role in intervening into politics, um, whether that be to criticise kings or to try and change the makeup of parliament or, you know, all these things. And we generally understand in the modern age that that's a bad thing, mm -hmm. that religion should be um, separate, or at least those of us who um, believe, you know, who secular believe that religion should be separate and kept different from having political influence. And, you know, of late, the Church of England has tried to, seems like it's tried to make a virtue out of becoming, um, out of politically interfering. You know, we've got, we've had um, Justin Welby and others talking, hectoring people about climate change. We had the kind of big pronouncement on the war in Ukraine and not just in terms of sort of Christian moral, a Christian moral discussion, you know, there's no harm in religious people voicing their view, but specifically aimed at particular politicians trying to wage a political war and definitely, you know, putting the Church of England on one side of the political debate. And it seems that's what they've done with Calvin, which is, you know, there should be some understanding that, um, you know, it's not like you're um, sort of coming out as some kind of rabid, you know, bigot or something, even though, not to say that that would then make it okay to ban you, but, you know, he's voicing an opinion that most people probably, um, to some extent, agree with. We know that the whole kind of desire to declare everything as institutionally racist is at, is at best questioned by most people. Um, but the church is, as I understand it, um, meant to have a kind of broad sense of bringing in everyone uh, if they believe in God, that being the fundamental 
thing and not having a kind of checkpoint list at the door of the church to say, if you don't agree with this political viewpoint, you're not allowed in. Um, so it seems absurd to me, and it's certainly not a way to attract people to a particular religion in the modern age. Mm. The only checkpoint is the Bible, and the Bible says there's neither Jew, Greek nor Jew. It says that we are all uh, one, one made of, hath made of one blood all nations of men, to, to use the quote directly. Therefore, we are all one people, as Bob Marley would say, one blood, one nation. So to be separating people into white and non-white is actually counter-scriptural. Mm. Look, I don't know about Calvin's individual case, and I think if Calvin hasn't come across racism in the Church of England, that's great. But it is interesting. Let me just challenge that before you go further, because I have not said I haven't come across racism. Okay. And racism is an individual sin that people commit, and people should be held responsible for their own actions. Right. If people are nasty and mean and racist, they should be held accountable. Absolutely. That doesn't make an entire institution. No, no. Racist. But I, actually, the thing is that in it, so in the last thirty-five years, there have been twenty-five reports um, dealing. At, in some level with racism, some have been completely, some have not, and there are 160 recommendations. And in the last report by Welby, um, he said, you know, we haven't moved far enough. And I, I mean, I actually think that, I mean, I, th I think it's good that the church is taking this seriously. I mean, I, 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 mean, I, I know that the, 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 the Jews have looked very heavily about racism within Jew Judaism and commissioned Stephen Bush to actually look at it and said, yes, there is. Is, is that actually, I think, I think, I mean, I, th I think it's. I, th I think we all have to say yes that there are often problems, and 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 if if you look at it in the church, you know what Justin Welby says is is there aren't enough people who who are influential who are black and ethnic minority. Now, what he's not saying is the church as a whole is 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 terribly racist. But I think to to to, to be complacent about it, going to Ella's point, you know, I I, I just think that that. When I was a child, basically the church was the Conservative Party at prayer. And as soon as they stopped being that, they were accused of whatever. It is now woke. It used to be politically correct. As soon as the church started, actually, you know, Jesus upset a lot of people, right? I mean, that's what I thought. I mean, I am not a Christian like Ella. I'm a secularist. But I thought that that's what the church was supposed to do, was supposed to question things. I mean, I even question why we're in favour of war when, you know, we're not supposed to kill people, right? But it just seems to me that actually that, that what the church is trying to do, and, and you look at the whole thing about the ordination of women, about gay people, I mean, actually, is, is that within the church, quite rightly, there is a very serious debate about how how they how they go on, and and it's a good thing that they have the debate rather than being complacent. Indeed, but the problem is, and you say they should take these issues seriously. Of course they should, but they shouldn't take a political bias. If they take any bias, it should be based on the Bible. Um, for example, the Sewell report came out recently that didn't find any evidence of institutional racism. And the church frowned upon it and said, this report causes anger and upset amongst us. It didn't look at the recommendations, it disregarded it. They did their own report and within the church's report, Lament to Action, they implement a lot of critical race theory, which we know to be divisive and toxic and refutable um, ideology. For example, taking on board positive discrimination. So every single uh, leadership position has to have a shortlist of 30% black and ethnic minorities on it. Now, considering that the country is, what, 14% black and ethnic minority, and about half of those are Muslim, where do they think they're going to get these people from? It's an arbitrary number, and we know that quotas don't work. Uh, they've also said that, you know, the next time there's a general election for the governing body of the Church of England, the General Synod, not after the election, they have to co-opt some black people on, as if to suggest that black people can't put themselves up for election. It's patronising, it's... 
It's biased by critical race theory um, ideology, and it's not helping. It's not taking on board the recommendations that have been put forward by the independent report. But, Kelvin, I mean, a lot of black people in the church feel that there is racism in Wait, the church. Wait, no, no, I'll stop you right there. <laughs> Do not t try to speak for an entire demographic. You cannot sit there as I didn't, a lot of I black said people. a lot. Is I said, I didn't ridiculous. say all, but, I mean, I've read the report. There is racism amongst people in every sector of life. Right. That does not make an institution racist. If there are hurdles to prevent someone from progressing within an institution, then perhaps. The, the second most powerful and influential person in the Church of England until recently, Jonathan Santamu, was a black African fellow. I, I personally have not felt hurdles until I've reached this point and the argument over hurdles. So I don't agree that saying a lot of people have experienced racism is enough to suggest that an institution is racist. Yeah, and I have to say, Ella, it seems like this kind of institutional kind of level of accusation is becoming more and more frequent. So, you know, we'll all be familiar by now today. Uh, another report has come out saying about maternity services, asking or suggesting, should I say, that these structurally, uh, institutionally, again, are racist. Mm -hmm. What do you think to this? Well, you know, Calvin's point about the difference between uh, racial discrimination and you know, racism on an um, individual basis, even if that individual basis is repeated um, quite a number of times, and the distinction between that and institutional racism, which is a, you know, an institution built with racism baked into it, or institutional sexism and that kind of thing, that's a very important distinction. Because if you look at the news, um, you know, the, the report from Birthrights that came out today that surveyed 300 women um, and found you know, things that I think most of us who've been tuned into the maternity discussion don't find surprising that for example there is a you know a black women are four times more likely to die um, in childbirth or you know during pregnancy than white women some of that has some very material um, reasons for it for example there is evidence that you know some people working in maternity services have been judging that whether or not somebody has jaundice a baby has jaundice or sepsis by the color of whether their skin is yellow that's obviously far more difficult to tell if you are black with dark skin than you are white. So there are problems, but no one is, rather than sort of going through the rigmarole of saying, we're institutionally racist, we're so sorry, you know, like or like people demanding that the police is institutionally racist, we're so sorry. What about asking the broader question of, you know, is there, is maternity services in this country fit for purpose? And we know that the Donna Ockerden report that came out a number of months ago, um, which found the scandal in Shrewsbury and Telford, Telford services had, you know, resulted in 201 babies dying and nine women and, you know, 1,500 families being affected or harmed in some way by failing maternity services, primarily because women weren't being listened to. But there's a broad question about a universal question, which is to say, when black women say, I'm not being listened to when I'm Asked for pain relief, and white women in Shrewsbury and Telford are saying, I wasn't listened to when my baby stopped moving at 35 weeks. There's a common experience there, and the answer is to say, how can we, to use that terrible term, level up or in improve maternity services for all without, you know, without ignoring differences of different people's experiences, but there is just seems to be no benefit in asserting, you know, kind of labelling something as institutionally racist just for the sake of it, because often, as we note with the recent um, report that came out from the police about racism, what ends up happening is that you have an institution saying, we're so sorry that we're racist, we're, you know, we're really sorry, but actually we're going to not change very much, and in the police's instance, we're going to carry on doing stop and search, in fact, increase stop and search powers. The same happens with the NHS. They might say, oh, we're really sorry that we don't treat, that we, you know, assume that Asian women are um, less likely to, less able to, uh, you know, deal with pain, and black women are more likely to deal with pain, and so we treat them differently. 
differently. Sorry about that, but we're not going to change very much. And I think the, the need is for material change across the board and a universal outlook for improvement rather than the kind of diverse, the, the divisive discussion around institutional racism or sexism or whatever it is. I just think that if, if you're four times more likely to die in childbirth if you're black or ethnic minority, that actually you have to do something about it, right? Is, is yes, you don't just say we're institutionally racism. You say, what are we going to do to stop this? Because it is a terrible statistic. I mean, it, it is, it's shaming, right? That, that, that's, that that's what, and, and it, it's about getting those things. And as you say, with stop and search, you know, we know who are getting stopped and searched. It's black boys, right? I mean, I remember when my son was a young man, I mean, he didn't get stopped and searched as often as a black boy. But if you, it's just, just the, the point I'm trying to make is that if you dig down into the reasons why, for example, with this birthrights report, many of the women, there's, there's a couple of cases of very practical things I talked about, like jaundice or people misdiagnosing on the basis of treating someone who's black different to someone who's white physically. Um, but, the, but most often the things that women talked about were not being listened to either when they were asking for pain relief or when they were reporting symptoms late in pregnancy. And that is an experience that, if you compare that with Telford and Shrewsbury, was universal. And, you know, Telford and Shrewsbury, by way of sort of location and demographic makeup, happened to me majority white women. No, you're so you're, it's, ab it's, you're you know, absolutely right. But it's still true that if you're black, you're four times more likely and, to die. And no one, all I'm saying no is we is have to do that. something about that. Is, so, yes, we have to do something about maternity services, but actually we do have to say there is a special problem that needs to be sorted out and we need to find out what has gone wrong that, that you're more likely to die in childbirth if you're black. The problem isn't that, that you're black. The problem is, so the moment we, we put it down to skin colour, we miss the underlying problem. We have to delve deeper and find out what's going on. If we, if we put it down to racism, then we're missing the bigger picture. A racial disparity is not necessarily evidence of racism. So I think Ella's on the, on the money with this one because it's black, Asian, and actually white people from deprived areas that are going through this issue. And this is why the Equalities Minister has put recommendations to fix the problem or to work towards helping the problem of mortality rates with continuity care for black, Asian, and people from deprived areas. So it's not just looking at skin colour, it's looking at who these problems affect and addressing them holistically and not, put, not pigeonholing them off onto one demographic. Yeah, I found it quite, um, I found this uh, comment quite interesting. Melissa Brown, midwife and officer at Birthright, said that maternity services were facing immense challenges. She says, we did hear positive examples of maternity care, but there is racism and racial discrimination at a structural and individual level, which is putting black, brown and mixed ethnicity women at harm. There are many complex reasons for poorer health outcomes for ethnic minorities, and racism and discrimination is definitely playing a role. Now, I've got to say, I've listened to this being debated quite a bit today, and I've been quite astonished at the kind of sentiment that I've heard kind of coming through, because people will phone in to radio shows, wherever, and say, yeah, you know, I was desperate for um, pain relief and all I was offered was kind of paracetamol and then the presenter, oh my gosh, yeah, this is, you know, racism. And, and it makes me slightly uncomfortable because I assume if you train to be a midwife yeah. and you're going to be a special kind of person to go into the caring profession, it's because you want to help people deliver babies. And I find it slightly peculiar that there's just this natural assumption by many people that somebody, a midwife, would say, oh, yes, today I'm going to help. Oh, I'm not going to help you, though, because you're black. It's the bad I just assumption. find it a little bit... So to give you a comparison, white people die of cancer more regularly than black patients. Now, would that suggest that 
white patients aren't being treated as well as black patients? I would suggest otherwise. I don't think that would be the case. I don't think cancer doctors are racist towards white patients in favour of black patients. But there's a clear disparity there, which means we need to look into the picture and find out what's going on at a deeper level yeah. and not just assume that it's race-based. So, so on this thing about, I mean, what, what the black women say is that their pain doesn't get taken as... I mean, the, the, the original report, I'm not talking about the report that came out today, the original report where it said four times as many women, black women die in childbirth, it's because that they were seen as tougher, right? Is that, that there, was, there was an attitude that black women were tougher. I mean, that, that's but, what but was said. Who? Because, because if I sit there, for example, I had a C-section and I was offered after the C-section paracetamol and ibuprofen. And I remember looking at the person and saying, are you having a laugh? I take that when I've got a hangover. You do not pretty much cut me in half and then give me paracetamol and ibuprofen. I don't think so. I want morphine. Now, if that hospital's pain management strategy is that at step one, level one, we offer patients paracetamol and ibuprofen, yeah. if that is their policy, then that is their policy. And if you want to accept that as a patient, accept it. And if you don't, push back like what I push back. So when I hear people saying, well, I don't think my pain was taken seriously and that's because you're racist, I find that a little bit hard to believe. You just look at the... What I'm saying is that, that we, we have to... I'm quite happy with uh, what Calvin says about digging down, but I, but I do think that if you are more likely to die in childbirth, and, and I'm sure that class has got a lot to do with it and deprivation, I, I absolutely agree with you, but I think that, that, that it's perfectly reasonable to dig down and find out what's going on. And as Ella said, sometimes it's about... Uh, this isn't childbirth, but it's about jaundice and the colour of the skin and there can be all sorts of things. Is that I, I mean, you know, it's just like um, finding out that, that, that when they do uh, tests on, on, on dummies, on on uh, in cars, right, that they always use men, that they don't actually use women, and everything is done about men. Well, the point is that if you dig down, you find out why why women are killed more often in car crashes, and it's because seatbelts don't fit properly. And I just think that it's perfectly possible, without getting all upset about it, to dig down and say, there is a problem, let's solve this problem, without having to go into, oh, God, we're not, gonna, you know, we're not going near this because it smells of institutional racism, when there is clearly a problem. Well, do you think there's clearly a problem? Get in touch with me, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Let me know your thoughts on that topic. Going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, I'm going to be looking at this. Equality laws. Uh, do you know about this? The protected characteristics. There's nine of them, apparently. And there's calls for them to be a tenth one, which is uh, basically a care lever. So if you've been in care, should that be a protected characteristic in law? Uh, we'll have that coming up and more in just a couple of minutes. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me until 7 o'clock. My panel is keeping me company, broadcaster and commentator Calvin Robinson, journalist Ella Wheeler and former Labour advisor Scarlett Maguire. And I think you even caught a glimpse then of someone that was just brushing my hair. <laughs> because, ladies and gentlemen, I've been complaining that I think I had something sticking out uh, at the side of my hair. So if you did just see a random elbow keeping me company there, that's what that was. Right, uh, lots of you have just been getting in contact about that last story. Scarlett, you mentioned about um, young black men being more like, or young black lads, teenage lads, I think you meant, uh, being more likely to uh, be stopped and searched. 
Calvin, I just wanted your response on that because um, people are emailing in saying, is that because young uh, black men are more likely to be the ones carrying the knives? Your it's, thoughts? Yeah, it's partly that demographic, but also partly the geography, uh, as in stop and search is mainly in the centre of London, uh, in deprived areas where crime is rising, and those areas tend to have a lot of black people living in them. So it's not a case of targeting black people in, in uh, specifically, it's more a case of going to the areas where the crime is happening and trying to prevent it, and stop and search does work. Mm. Lots of people, by the way, are saying that you'd be very welcome in their church. Oh, thank you. Very <laughs> welcome. Uh, right, uh, let's look at this next story, shall we? Growing up in care, apparently, this should be a protected characteristic when it comes to equality law. That would be the same, for example, uh, as, say, being gay or being disabled, etc. The independent review of the whole children's social care system says that making the move will help reduce stigma and uh, discrimination. These recommendations uh, would be part of what some people are calling like a radical reset of the whole care system. But do we need them? Do we need this? Do we need uh, growing up in care to be a protected characteristic? Scarlett? I, I think it's the least of the problem. I think what's so terrible is how bad the care system is and how it fails the children in it. And, and, and that's why this has happened, is that children coming out of the care system, what is it, one in four end up, one in four of homeless people uh, were in the care system. I mean, it is absolutely terrible. And what this report that's come out today shows is just how bad the care system is, how uh, the, 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 the top commercial companies are just taking a, an awful lot of money uh, out of the government so that, that the children can't be looked after properly. I mean, this was one of 80 recommendations, and I just think the most important recommendation is to actually sort out the care system so that we stop failing these children because they are the most vulnerable children. They're children whose families have fallen apart, right? And uh, and often have, have incredible problems themselves, their families have problems, and they come out of the care system at 16 unable to cope, um, of, often being kept in, I mean, terrible, terrible conditions. Uh, so, I mean, I think that that's what we should be doing rather than going on to say wh whether they, you know, whether whether it should be a protected characteristic. And that's where we actually need to put, put all our effort into. Um, just to give you all some stats on this, by the way, before I come over to Ella. Uh, in the UK this year, around 35,000 children and young people will enter the care system. So that's 95 children per day. I found that astonishing, actually. 95 children a day. Uh, there are also around 103,000 uh, children in the UK who are looked after away from home. Nearly 70,000 uh, kids live with almost 55,000 55, fostering households across the UK too. And uh, get this, there are currently 2,040 children uh, waiting for adoption in England and 160 waiting for the same in Wales. That data is not available for Scotland and Northern Ireland. Ella, where do you stand on all this? Well, it, the question of um, the numbers of children in care is a, is a real problem. It's also a complicated one that's exacerbated by several factors. We know that the adoption system has become more onerous and more um, complicated than, you know, than necessary in recent years. You know, I personally know someone who went through it who had you know, their BMI questioned as to whether or not they 
are going to be a good parent. That it gets to that level of sort of restricting people who want to do the most wonderful thing in the world, which is raise children um, who are in need of parents. So that's one thing. We also know that the removal of children from um, homes and from family life has become increased in a way that isn't always necessary or beneficial because of the kind of rise in panics about child welfare, again, external from any kind of serious consideration where kids really do need to be brought into care. But this thing, you know, I agree to a certain extent with Scarlett about the, you know, the sort of tokenism of making this a protected characteristic, which really isn't going to address the serious questions. So, you know, Josh McAllister, who was head of the report um, commissioned by the government, the, the review that looked into this, pointed out that, you know, if 19, of 19 to 21 year olds in this country, 12 percent who are from families... Uh, that were, would be relatively, you know, quote unquote, normal, um, are out of work. But that jumps up to 41% when you have children who haven't had a normal family or children from care. And, you know, he puts that down to the fact that, you know, if you are, if you have mum and dad as normal, um, they or auntie or uncle knows someone in a job, you get a wink and a nod, you're more likely to get into a workplace. But with children in care, that they don't have that backup informal network. Now, you're not going to fix that by, um, you know, changing the Equality Act. That's a bigger question for accessibility into work and, you know, or discrimination or kind of cronyism and nepotism. Um, and I think that the, you know, what this really highlights is our reliance on the law to fix social problems. And if I had my way, I'd scrap all the characteristics under the Equality Act because I think what it does in the same way that sort of hate crime does is suggests that individuals, one, need the state to step in um, where in many cases where it's unnecessary and an overreach, but also that people are defined by their in their experiences that they can't control, so that being from the care system would define your whole outlook, or indeed being a woman, a pregnant woman, a trans person, you know, all those things that are on the list or suggested to be on the list, um, rather than actually saying, what is it about society that has to change in order to help people get on and, and as Scarlett says, fix this very real problem? Uh, well, joining us now is Terry Galloway, who's a campaigner for young people in care. Good evening to you, Terry. Hello there. Hi there. Uh, first and foremost, you know, there's been this big review that we're talking about tonight. Uh, one of the aspects of this is whether or not uh, essentially being a care leaver should be a protected characteristic in law. Where do you stand on that? Well, it was actually our group that campaigned hard for this uh, with the care review. Uh, so it's something that we are really passionate about. Um, it's not going to be a silver bullet as such, but it's really going to help in the background. And what, what I'm particularly interested in with the protected characteristic is the indirect discrimination that happens. Um, so, so I think it, it's going to give policymakers and decision makers uh, something to think about when, when they're creating those, those uh, policies mean in practical terms so when you say you want it to be a character a protected characteristic give us an example of what that would look like how, how would it benefit people well you've got like let, let's say um there's there's care leavers out there who were split up whilst they was in care that happens quite a lot they'll get split up they'll have their care records uh, written about them and then years later they'll try and find their uh, siblings, they'll ask for copies of their care re records uh, under data protection guidance, but then their family's names will be redacted. 
because of data protection. Now, if the when the information commissioner creates those rules and regulations and guidance, they at the moment have to um, do an equality impact assessment on the nine current uh, protected characteristics, which will see how the policy impacts them. Now, if care experience was in that those those ten, then they would see that these care experience people are a little bit different. They need to have their siblings' names so that they can go and find them. You know, and I know people who it's taken fifty years to get back in touch with their with their siblings. Yeah, see, when you say it like that, that's it does just, sound... Uh, sorry, go ahead. That, that's just one example. And, and then there's another one, for instance. Um, like recently, Shelter have really uh, campaigned hard in the private rental sector. And they've managed to um, demonstrate that land, uh, landlords and letting agents that say no DSS or no housing benefit are actually discriminating against women. Uh, now, women is uh, sex is a is a protected characteristic, and and what's actually what they've said there is that it's indirect discrimination because women are more likely to be on benefits, so therefore it's it's against the rules. Now, if you if you adopt the same approach with care experience people, and you know letting agents right now with with the way the the housing sector is, they they will hardly take uh, anybody unless they've got a, a parental guarantor or a guarantor. Now, what what, what will care leavers do if they've got no guarantor you know for, for private rented property and then if you, you look at universities who who have like term time term time um halls of residence and what what do care experience people do when when everyone goes on home on holiday to the parents you know what do they do during a bed and breakfast so these are all indirect discriminations that can really help people like us campaigning in the background to, to make policy change Food for thought. Uh, Terry, thank you very much for your time. That's Terry Galloway there, a campaigner. Where do you stand on this? Because, see, we started off this conversation looking at whether or not this is a, an important part of it, protected characteristics. Do we need that? Do we not? He's making the case there for why, in, in their mind anyway, it's essential. I tend to agree with Scarlett and Ella in that I don't think the Equalities Act does what it's supposed to do. I think it gets in the way and it is state overreach, so that shouldn't be the solution. And I think Scarlett's right that we need to look at families, look at the care system and get back to the, the core of what's causing this issue rather than later down the line when we're looking for employment. But he's right. I mean, I mean, what he's saying is right. I mean, what 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 I didn't want is is for you to start having quotas and things and, and to get away from That's the what point. Happen, but what, what he's saying about the Data Protection Act and things like that is, I, I just think there should be another way of doing it. It just seems sensible that we have to think, we have to look at children in care, people coming out of care, and what do we do so that they can find their siblings. I mean, it's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Why do we have so many children going into care? We've forgotten about the family. We need to incentivise, promote, encourage the family and educate people on how to be good parents again. There's, well, you know, you're right that everything that Terry said was important and are serious problems that need to be fixed. But the whole question of, you know, and essentially he's treated, and campaigners like him are treating the issue of protected characteristics basically as a, a legal workaround, a means to get what they want, which is to be able yeah. to fix these problems, which you might say is fair enough and you know what what problem would you have with that on the other hand we know that the list of protected characteristics is expanding and expanding and expanding and you have to look at the long-term consequence of the suggestion that individuals be defined by you know me as a woman or someone else as a disabled person or something like that and what legal ramifications that has for you know individual freedom in the future but also our sense of 
how things change in society. I think that's my main problem, which is that I think too often we have a sort of, not to at all call Terry or campaigners like him, um, lazy, but there is a general, the narrative tends to be lazy, which is that all that needs to happen to invoke change in society is the flick of a lawyer's pen, is a law change, rather than actually saying what you're wanting to do is the more difficult issue of changing social norms, of changing you know, the way in which people interact with each other. Maybe those things can happen in tandem, but when you see something like this, you know, you know, it, within the report that McAllister suggested, you know, he 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 asks for some very significant and practical outcomes. For example, and that Terry was talking about as well, which is, for example, tell landlords that they can't discriminate on the basis of, um, you know, of, of um, guarantors, or that they can't reject people with benefits. You don't have to do that within the protected characteristics framework, and doing so makes a bigger political point about how we view individuals in society. Now, I'm I'm agreeing with you, but I just think we need to do something. And 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 Terry. But no one suggested Terry, that we do nothing. Yeah, Terry was finding a way of doing it. Josh McAllister was trying to work out a way of doing it. I mean, what worries me is this is going to be a yet another report, which is absolutely damning and terrifying, and nothing happens. Uh, should we just remind ourselves, by the way, in case you're not familiar, what these protected characteristics currently are? I think we can bring that up on the screen. Uh, just a quick reminder. You're going to have to have good eyesight if you can read that, ladies and gentlemen. Luckily, I've got my glasses on. Um, right, so let's just remind ourselves, shall we? It's against the law to discriminate against uh, somebody because of the following things. Age, disability, gender reassignment, marriage and civil partnership, pregnancy and maternity, race, religion or belief, sex and sexual orientation. They are your protected characteristics. Dan on the email says, Michelle, I am amazed by all of this. All we do nowadays is define everybody uh, by their identities, etc., and then wonder why there is more so-called stigma. You couldn't make it up. We are all special and different. Let's try, maybe, and get over it. That's from Dan on the email. Let me know your thoughts. Gonna take a quick break. When we come back, I'll have some more of your responses. And also, I wonder, are you gonna be celebrating the Queen's Jubilee? Are you going to a street party? If so, and they're good for you, I hope to be doing the same myself, but I wonder, do you think that council should be spending their slash our money on this? Really? Is that what a council should be doing, giving grants so that you can go party and celebrate the Queen? We'll have that and more coming up in a couple of minutes. Coming up on Dan Wharton tonight, will the World Health Organization's shilling pandemic treaty have any real impact on battling future outbreaks? Top Oxford epidemiologist Professor Carl Hennigan delivers his professional verdict. Plus, as Black Lives Matter comes under fire for their dodgy finances, I hear from Nick Buckley, MBE, who was forced out of his own charity for criticizing the organization. Now he's demanding answers and an apology as to why he was sacrificed for speaking the truth. Also on hand, Neil Oliver and my superstar panel, Daily Express columnist Carol Malone, senior reporter at the i-newspaper Benjamin Butterworth and former Brexit Party MEP and political commentator Belinda DeLucy. That's Dan Wharton tonight, Monday to Thursday from 9pm to 11pm on GV News.
Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubry. A uh, quick reminder as to who's keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, my panel, broadcaster and commentator Calvin Robinson, journalist Ella Whelan and former Labour advisor Scarlett Maguire. Lots of uh, contacts coming in about some of the conversations that we've just been having. Annette says, if the care system is broken, it is because of a complete disregard and support of family life in this country. You feel quite strongly about that as well, Absolutely. don't you, Calvin? Um, Elizabeth says it's all well and good implementing this, but if no one follows it up in the wider community, then it is worthless. I think you're kind of saying there that there's all this focus, Elizabeth, on whenever a report comes out, isn't there? And then what happens next? Very little is often the answer to that. Um, Lorna says it's not working. Kids will stay in the system until the age of 18. Why don't relatives uh, help them out rather than just putting children into the care system again? I think that's the point uh, that a couple of people are making. What about the family unit? But unfortunately, um, you know, when you see some of the wrong-uns that actually have children and, and also, I mean, we read all these stories out all the time, don't we? I've lost count of how many stories I've personally done whilst I've been in this job the short time about how many people have killed their own children. You know, when all that's going on, you have to get those children out. And unfortunately, very often, uh, there aren't always decent relatives for those kids to go to. But that is a shocking statistic, isn't it? 95 children a day in the UK will go into the care system. Poor kids, that's what I say. Uh, right, less than two weeks to go. And already, of course, the flags are out. Have you seen the flags? All of these pictures, they look lovely, don't they? Have you got flags, in fact, where you are? Uh, the Queen's Platinum Jubilee is, of course, going to be celebrated by many of us. Lots of street parties. But get this, many of these street parties are going to be funded by grants from the local councils. Got me thinking about this. Do you really think that councils should be spending their money on parties, street parties, Scarlett? Uh, absolutely not. I, I think it's great if people want to have parties, that's fine. If people want to have street parties or parties in their gardens or homes, that's great. I do not think, I, I don't think the council or the state should be paying for it. Oh, it's worth £1,000, I've read, some of these grants. Not bad work. If you can get it, I wouldn't mind someone paying me £1,000 to party. I think it? it's great. I think London 2012 was amazing. We had a sense of unity in the country. And since then, we've had Brexit, we've had... Um, general election after general election and I think we're more divided now than we've been in a long long time so if something like this can bring us all back together you know the Queen's been serving us for 70 years for goodness sake it's a celebration that's deserved. Ella? Deserved but should the councils be paying for it? Well you know I'm a Republican so I'm not particularly interested in uh, celebrating Her Majesty but I'm also a big fan of the sense of you know neighbourhood communities and you know in so many different stories whether it be you know what we've just been talking about the care system or you know crime or things like that we come down to the conclusion that a lot of society's ills or many of society's ills can be at least in part put at the hands of the fact that you know community we've broken down communities whether that's shutting pubs shutting playgrounds you know all this sort of stuff we don't know who's living next to each other anymore and so a street party even if it's covered in the union jack which may not be my cup of tea but you know might be somebody else's is a good way of doing that i also think we shouldn't let councils off the hook because there's also this many councils are incredibly tight and they uh, often make the suggestion that they can't fill in potholes because there isn't any money at the same time as they're splashing thousands of pounds on, you know, some kind of ridiculous uh, fun, uh, awareness raising scheme about recycling that they do in Hackney, where I am from all the time, which is so... It's PR, isn't it? Yeah, it's incredibly tedious. Or, you know, and indeed this, this grant that people are going to get doesn't come without a catch. You've got to fill in the safety form. You've got to do the risk assessment. You, you 
know, suggested somewhere that you might even have to do sort of terror threat assessments. So the, so the question of how many people are actually going to go through the rigmarole of getting it is one thing. But I think, you, you know, the, the term party pooper has been used. If people want to have a good time and they can get a bit of cash out of an incredibly tight council most of the time, fair play to them. Well, lots of you, well, lots of you in support, I think, of your councils paying for you to have a good old knees up. Uh, like I was saying, up to a thousand pounds you can get your mitts on. Uh, lots of other councils giving up to five hundred pounds. That is not bad work, is it? I wouldn't mind someone paying me to party. What are you doing for the jubilee? I'm going home. So, well, home to me is Hull. Lovely. So yes, I shall be there. I don't know what any plans are that we've got at the moment, but I don't need an excuse, quite frankly, to What's go out party? and have a little. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> drink and a shimmy but yeah we can use the queen i'll use that as an excuse to have a good time but yeah i actually do think lots of the sentiment coming through as well that we've all had an awful time and again saying that actually it's just been a real unpleasant time for people so why not come together and uh, a sentiment that's making me smile is why not spend it on the council's money on partying as opposed to diversity managers mm. that is a sentiment that is coming through quick and fast dawn and says michelle i've emailed the archbishop about the way they've treated Calvin. Oh. He says it is disgraceful, Alison says. The Church of England is not racist, Michelle. They are simply left-wing. Mm. Um, the biggest, Rob says, the biggest source of institutional racism in this country, Michelle, is that we are institutionally terrified of being called racist. That's Rob's thought there. Uh, let me know your thoughts. Keep them coming in. Lots of you, I'm asking you at the start of the programme, were you bothered about monkey uh, pox? The sentiment that I'm getting thick and fast is that most of you, you don't give a monkeys. Uh, well, I'm saying absolutely nothing. That's all we've got time for tonight. Ella, Scarlett and Calvin, thank you very much for your time. And thank you at home as well for yours. Don't forget, if you've missed this, if you just switched on, you think, what have I missed? Well, guess what? You can get a podcast of the show. Download it wherever you get your podcast from. You have yourself a fantastic evening and I will see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.